All right. Well, welcome again for those of you who are joining us a little bit later today. Um, and as we're going to um, we're going to move forward today uh, in our sermon series, The Story, where we explore uh, the grand narrative that God has been planning from the beginning of the universe uh, till its very end. Now, last week, we, we covered a portion of Israel's history uh, where they asked Yahweh for a human king. And if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you kind of see what happens, right? It actually caused significantly more harm than good, uh, not just in their relationship with God, but also in practical life too. Uh, throughout that time, injustice was rampant throughout Israel. Uh, poverty, unfortunately, became an inescapable problem for many Israelites. Uh, the nation of Israel and Judah were harassed by stronger nations. And rather than turning back, to their king, rather than turning back to God for help, uh, we would see them turn their hearts to human kings or even to foreign nations like Egypt, uh, which unfortunately led to disaster for the people as they were shipped off uh, to foreign nations. But in the midst of this disaster, in the midst of their, their nation literally crumbling, we hear God's prophets give a new word of hope and a new word of restoration. That is, the people of God are exiled from the promised land to serve as servants and slaves to a new king in a foreign nation, the prophet Jeremiah tells them a message of hope. And so let's read this message of hope that Jeremiah has for them and also for us as well. So hear these words from the Lord. And it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them up out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What a beautiful message Jeremiah wrote. Now before we, we jump straight into our sermon, uh, I want to present to us a, a fun little thought experiment. Maybe you guys have heard of this before. And as we're about to talk about the new covenant, I want us to wonder what the word new actually means. Now, what do I mean by this? Um, in Greek philosophy, there's a very, very fun paradox, as, again, some of you might know this. It's called the ship of Theseus paradox. And now here's how this paradox goes. So there's this legendary ship that was formerly owned by uh, Theseus, and every year, the Athenians, they would celebrate the victories of Theseus by taking his ship out and going on a pilgrimage to a nearby island, uh, the island of Delos, about 100 miles away. And the question is this. Suppose the Athenians celebrated this, this, this tradition year after year for centuries after centuries, and every time, you know, the boat goes out and comes back, something breaks, a nut, you know, a nut falls off, a plank is broken. So after several hundred years of replacing this boat part by part by parts, at the end, is it still the same boat? Is it still the same ship of Theseus? And this is actually an interesting philosophical question as well when it relates to our personal identity, right? Because if all of our cells are replaced 
every seven years, am I still Brandon? Now, of course, we're not going to go into deep philosophical inquiries today, but hopefully what that question brings up in our minds is the idea of what is old and what is new? At what point is something actually considered new? Is the ship new the moment we replace one plank of wood, right? It's no longer the same as the old one, right? Or is the ship new when you replace 51%, maybe 75%, or maybe 100%? At what point, at what number do you settle at to consider this a new boat? And this is an important question for us to consider because when we look at our Bibles, we see that there's an Old Testament and then there's a New Testament. And so as we explore today this, this new hope and this new covenant that Jeremiah prophesies that are ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ, we're going to be exploring the relationship between these two Testaments. What is new? What is old? And then we're going to explore some practical implications it has in our lives. So let's talk about some aspects of continuity first between the old and the new. Now, for some of you, um, you might actually know, I actually do not like to use the words old and new testaments uh, for either of them because the word old, it carries with it a connotation that it is obsolete, that's not worthwhile to read and not worthwhile to study. And so sometimes you might see Christians who, who look at the Old Testament and think in their mind, like, I don't need to read this, right? It's all about Jesus. I, ju I just need to read the New Testament. I just need to read the Gospels. That's it. But a big reason why I call this sermon series The Story and not The Two Stories or The Two Testaments is because the better way to understand Scripture is to see it as one story, to see it as one singular unfolding story that moves towards greater and greater levels of fulfillment. And so if we understand the entirety of the Bible as one whole complete story, we see that there's actually a lot of continuity between the First Testament or the Old Testament and the Second Testament or the New Testament. And one of the things that is constant between them both is that it is still the same story about the same God, and it is actually the same moral law that is to be fulfilled in our lives. If you notice in our passage, Jeremiah talks about a law or the law being written on our hearts. And for Jeremiah, this is actually not a new law that God writes, but it is actually the, still the same law of the Old Testament. And so what is this law that we are to have inscribed within our hearts? Well, first of all, it's still the same law or the same requirement of obedience that is same in both the Old Testament and the New. Uh, for the reason, and the reason for this is that if we are to belong in God's kingdom, we have to recognize that this kingdom has its own laws that we must obey in order to be in it, Right? No one travels to a different country and expect to follow laws uh, back in the United States, right? You can't, you can't go to the United Kingdom and start driving on the right side of the road, right? That would cause absolute mayhem, absolute disaster. And so if you want to be a good citizen or if you want to be a good person within this other nation, this other kingdom, you would have to follow its rules. And so we recognize that even if we travel, if we are in a different nation with different rules, if we want to belong, then we have to abide, by those rules. And it's the same in God's kingdom. 
as Israel settled in the promised land and are now the nation and the kingdom of God here on earth, there's an expectation for them to follow God's law. And likewise, we as Christians who have been adopted by God and are now part of his kingdom, we're also called to live a life that is obedient to the laws of God, to the laws of his kingdom. And so what is this law that is required by God? And this law has two parts. And the first part is to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and all your mind. In our passage today at, at verse 32, we actually see God describe his relationship with the nation of Israel as a relationship between a husband and a wife. And what this is meant to show was that the love that Israel were to have for God it was supposed to be a relational type of love. It was not about outward displays of holiness or doing the proper ritual at the proper time and then kind of like carrying on with your own day. Rather, it is similar to a love that a husband or wife has for their spouse, a desire to know this person more deeply, a desire to honor this person, and a desire to remain faithful out of deep, deep love. And so just as we love our spouses with every fiber of our being, we're also called to do the same for God as well, to love God with every single fiber of our being. And for Christians, this has not changed, as we too are called by Jesus, as he quotes the Shema, and he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, and to enter into a relationship with him. See, Christianity is by no means a dead religion that is bound by outward religious observances. But it's truly about knowing the Lord, to love the Lord with enthusiasm, with passion, and to respond appropriately to God's grace and love with our own obedience. And so that aspect of the law has not changed. Another aspect of the law that has not changed is to love our neighbors. Uh, we must not forget that Israel's original intended role was to be a blessing to all nations, to be a kingdom of priests that serve other nations, and also to be an infectiously holy nation that would spread the goodness of God into other cultures, into other nations around it. And that is what it meant to love your neighbors during that time, to serve them and to bring them to the knowledge of God. And in Christ, we again see that it is still the same law, as Christ instructs us as well to love our neighbors as ourselves. To love your neighbor is to serve them as a priest, to be a representative of God to your neighbor, but also to be your neighbor's representative back to God as well. To seek and to serve your neighbors and to seek their own journey or to actually help their own journey to find God and to finally know him. And so what we see is that what was old is actually, it's still new. We recognize that the truth of what Jesus said when he said that he's not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that there's a continuity between the Testaments. Why? Because it is still the same story about the same God and the same mission he has for all of creation. However, as God's mission unfolds, we actually see greater and greater levels of fulfillment in salvation history. We see actually that there is something new. There is something novel in this new covenant that is not found earlier. And so let's explore some of that as we look at some of the discontinuities in the story. And what we see in the discontinuities, 
in the discontinuities is that something fundamentally changes for God, but something also fundamentally changes for humanity as well. And one of the things that makes the new covenant new is that all the prophecies of the Old Testament are about to be fulfilled, right? Starting from Genesis, God promises to send a man who would strike down the serpent and remove sin once and for all. Then as we move forward, we see God's desire and goal for Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to all nations. And as we move even further forward into the Old Testament, right, you start to see this, this thing start to unravel. You see that God promises to David that his throne would last forever, and out of David's line, God would bring forth the king of all creation. And in order to fulfill all of these promises, God does something entirely novel, that has never been seen before in the entirety of humanity. God comes in the flesh to fulfill all of those promises, to fulfill all of those prophecies. Everything that the Old Testament looked forward to was fulfilled in Christ. Often in biblical theology, we would say that the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. And what we mean by that statement is that as the Israelites hear about all these spectacular promises, all these you know, prophecies of hope, they actually had no idea who or what to expect. They have suffered for centuries under foreign nations. They've been abused, killed, discriminated against. And the only thing these Israelites could cling to was the hope that God would somehow turn this around and fulfill his promises to them. They had no idea what this would look like, but they hoped against all hope. And in the New Testament, they receive this hope when God himself comes to live in their midst as a human being and as their king. And so we see that something fundamentally changes for God and that he takes on human flesh. He becomes fully human. God once again comes to them as their king, this time not in an ark, not in a temple, but in the flesh in order to fulfill every promise that he has made for them. But not only does something drastically change for God, but something drastically changes for humanity as well. Unfortunately, for centuries upon centuries, the Israelites, they were called to faithfully love God and display that love through obedience to his laws. And of course, we all know that some Israelites, they were, they were able to live that out better than others, right? We think of Moses, we think of Joshua, David, uh, the prophets like Elijah, or even the prophet that we read earlier, Jeremiah. However, despite their love for God, the problem always remained. The reality of sin and the hardness of their hearts was always present. But through Christ's death and resurrection, a new reality is ushered into human history where it's no longer sin that rules within our hearts, but rather it is the Holy Spirit that reigns and rules in the hearts of all believers, where God's love and God's law are written within our hearts. Now, what do I mean by this? Or, or more accurately, why does this even matter that God's law is written within our hearts? So let's take a look at that in our final sermon point as we think about some practical implications of the things that we've talked about so far. So we see that the prophet Jeremiah, he speaks on behalf of God where he says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And traditionally in Christianity, we see that realized on the day of Pentecost 
when, when the Holy Spirit comes into the believer's life, right? And you see them prophesy, you see them do all sorts of miracles of all kinds. And the beautiful thing about this is that the original Jewish celebration of Pentecost celebrates the day that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with God's laws written on a tablet of stone. However, we also know that as Moses came down from the mountain, the people's hearts were already hardened. The people's hearts were still ruled by sin and rebellion as the Israelites created a golden calf and worshipped it. But after Christ's ascension back into heaven, we see a different Pentecost event. Rather than Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, we see that it is the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven. And rather than God's law being written on tablets of stone, we now see that it is God's law that is written within our hearts. And the law being written in our hearts, it's not just about having a moral conscience or, or a, some sort of moral compass. It actually goes much deeper and much further than that. If the sin in our lives has been wiped clean and our hearts instead receive God's law, what that means for us is that holiness, righteousness, love for God, and love for our neighbors become who we fundamentally are. Our identities are forever changed. In the past, we are ruled by sin, right? We're ruled by cruelty. We, we are ruled by hate, by unfaithfulness. That was our default state of mind. But then through the power of the Holy Spirit, when the law is finally written within our hearts, we become who we are properly meant to be. We are finally the proper images of God, the proper images of holiness, of justice, of righteousness, the perfect ideal human before the fall. That is who we are when God's law is written within our hearts. And so if that is true, then it's no longer accurate to say to yourself, I'm a bad person, I'm unfaithful, or I'm a sinner. That's no longer accurate. Rather, we have to fully embrace our new identity where we acknowledge that we are holy, we are righteous, and that we are faithful. And the thing is, it is true, you know, in that we are all kind of rough around our edges, as Eddie Cologne might say. But if we dig deep enough, if we look deep enough into our hearts, we actually come to a startling realization that our hearts are pure because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Indeed. Absolutely. We will slip up. We will make mistakes. We will continue to sin. But when we embrace the power of this new identity within our hearts, the shackles of sin are broken. There's no pleasure in sin anymore when we see it as hollow in comparison to the joy we receive in loving God and being loved by God. The shackles of addiction are broken when we realize we're no longer alcoholics, smokers, drug abusers, or gamblers. Instead, what are we then? We are now the children of God who are loved so much that God himself delights to make his home within our hearts. That is our true fundamental identity. Holiness and righteousness are who we are at the core of our being. That is why we are set free from sin. And because this is our fundamental identity, we're actually called to look backwards 
We're actually called to look back to the First Testament in order to understand what it means to live a faithful, obedient life to God, right? The reality is that although we are given new identities and we embrace this new identity, we also have to acknowledge that the world and our bodies and our souls, it's not fully healed yet, right? We are indeed, as I said earlier, rough around the edges because sin still exists in this world. And because of that, we are still prone to idolatry. We are still prone to selfishness and to injustice. And because of this, if you read through the New Testament, you would always see that the New Testament disciples and writers, they would always refer back. They would always look back to the old in order to teach us what it means to be faithful to God as someone who is still fully human. But not only that, but if we are given new identities of holiness, of justice, and of love, we're also called to live that identity out through our actions and our behaviors. We are still called, like the Israelites, to live a life of obedience to God and to God's law. We're still called to live as citizens of God's kingdom here on earth. And we are most definitely still called to be a blessing to all nations by serving others and by loving all of our neighbors. And so brothers and sisters, as we, as we look at this new covenant, I hope you all see it from a new perspective. Although it is new, I also hope that you see the connections it has with the old, and that it is still the same God who still has the same mission in the world, and it is still the same call for obedience of all of God's people. But at the same time, I also hope that by contrasting it with the old, you can understand how much more incredible this new covenant truly is, and that God finally, once and for all, deals with the sin problem, and he grants us, all of us, new identities through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but most of, most of all, I also pray that it'll inspire within you also a sense of hope, or maybe a sense of wonder, that just as the Israelites waited and waited and waited for the Messiah to come for centuries upon centuries, we also share in that anticipation, in that hope as well, as we wait and wait and wait for God's return, where all things will finally be made new. I hope that the unfolding of God's story inspires you a confidence in knowing that just as God was faithful in the past, he'll continue to be faithful in the future. And if he has done something extraordinary that changed the course of human history 2,000 years ago, I hope it inspires within you a curiosity or a wonder of what God might do, what great and mighty things God has prepared for his people and his creation in the days to come. So as we're about to enter into a, a period of prayer, uh, let us come with the thankful hearts and a joyful hearts to the God we serve. So why don't we come together in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you today for being a faithful God. Um, you've promised since the start of our world that you'll deal with the sin problem once and for all. And through the death and resurrection of your son, we have seen that. And Lord, we confess today that as we reflect on how you have moved each step of human history closer and closer to total healing and cleansing, we are filled with hope, knowing that death and decay, that destruction, that's, whether that's in this world or in our lives, is, is no longer the final destination, no longer has the final say. Rather, it is life in you. 
And so we thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit. We thank you that your laws are written within our hearts. We thank you for our new identity in you. And so we pray that as your children and as citizens in your kingdom, you'll continue to empower us to live a life that is honoring to you. Continue, Lord, to teach us what it means to love. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be obedient. Continue to teach us, Lord, what it means to be faithful to you. And we pray all this in your precious Son's name. Amen.